listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome. Today our guest is Leah Medway from Perkins Coie. Leah spoke to us from Seattle, where she is based. We discussed her career and role at the firm, its pro bono program, the theme of pro bono clients searching for a home in all of its meanings, a documentary short film about one of the firm's pro bono clients called The Chance for a New Life, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Leah. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in. To get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, things like that? Sure. How much time do you have? (laughs) Endless time. It's a podcast. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, I have moved around quite a bit, so I will try to give you the short version. I was born in New York, which is where my family is from. My parents are both academics, or at least they became academics, which caused us to move around a bit. So I lived in Indiana for a bit when I was young and ended up moving to California. And I grew up in Los Angeles, California. And then I went back east to college. I went to Tufts University in Boston for undergraduate. I took a couple of years after college where I was a paralegal, which um, I I will credit my experience as a paralegal in D.C. with sort of helping me know that I wanted to become a lawyer. And then I went to law school at University of Virginia, which was a great experience. And I then went to a law firm in Washington, D.C. And um, I worked at a couple of different law firms as a corporate lawyer before ultimately finding my way to the pro bono world. Well, let's circle back to why you became a lawyer. I, I, you know, you said you spent time as a paralegal and that helped solidify your decision, but what else, what other factors went into the calculus and motivated you to become a lawyer? I think it's one of those things that I knew for a long time. Um, When I was growing up, I was a pretty serious dancer. So for me, it was either I was going to become a professional dancer or I was going to become a lawyer. I think that probably came from the fact that my father is a law professor. So I grew up sort of surrounded by um, him and all his friends and, and, you know, a lot of people in the law world. And I liked to argue a lot with him and other people. And so I figured it would be something that I was good at. And so it was sort of something that was always in the back of my mind. But when I graduated college, I just, I wasn't quite, quite ready to go there. I wanted a little time to work and to just figure things out. And so that's why I took a break and worked as a paralegal. That makes total sense. Let's talk about how you got to Perkins Coie. How'd you end up there? I was working in Washington, D.C., and I, I took a little bit of a break when my, uh, when my children were young. And at that time, my husband, who was a partner in a law firm in Washington, D.C., got a job in-house here in Seattle. And so that had us move all the way across the country from one Washington to the other. And so I found myself here in this Washington um, where I hadn't gone to school and I didn't really know a lot of people. And I was just trying to create a network and figure out what I could do as far as going back to work. Um, And ultimately, that led me to Perkins Coie. It was actually kind of funny. I was doing a lot of networking and I was just reaching out to figure out what jobs there might be, would I work for a foundation, would I work for a nonprofit? 
and I reached out to the then pro bono counsel at Perkins Coie because I figured she would be pretty well connected and would know a lot of people. And I went to meet with her and she said it was great timing that I reached out to her because she had just that morning posted a position because she was leaving and they were hiring a new pro bono counsel. Serendipity. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. And I wasn't even I wasn't even looking necessarily for a pro bono counsel position. I had done that in D.C. before um, when I worked at, at Piper. And I knew I wanted to be sort of in the sphere of doing public interest work, but I thought, well, maybe I'll do something different. And so I, I wasn't necessarily looking for one of these jobs. I know how infrequently they come up. So yeah, it really was serendipity, and but that's how I ended up here. Yeah, that's amazing, which also makes it hard to give job advice because <laughs> it's hard to say, right? You can depend on networking and boom, <laughs> I'll follow my story, but. Well, I mean. I would yes, I mean it, it did it did work out for me in that sense, but I would say that I worked pretty hard networking to yeah. really meet a lot of people in the community, and I think that helped me. And I regularly meet with people who are interested in jobs such as such as a pro bono counsel position, um, and I do talk to them a lot about just positioning yourself by being in the community and getting to know people because a lot of times these jobs will come up before they're officially posted. So I still do think the networking can help. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a people business. Um, so you mentioned um, thinking about things that might be of interest to you, working in the public interest, joining the pro bono community, which you have done. Um, what do you think sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? Well, when I was a paralegal between college and law school, I regularly volunteered at legal clinics, and I remember at that time being struck by just the huge needs in the community and how even as a paralegal, there were things I could do to help people just to identify legal issues and even point them in the right, right direction. I wasn't giving legal advice at the time. And I would say that throughout law school, I wasn't necessarily focused on it. I mean, I think it was in the back of my mind, but I had decided I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And so I was really more focused on that. But when I got to my first firm, I don't think I'd been there very long before somebody said, hey, you know, will you go to a clinic and um, will you sort of get involved in pro bono? And I said, yes, because I thought that's what I should do. And so I dove in and I handled a huge pro bono case when I was a first year lawyer. And even though I was a corporate lawyer, it was a litigation matter. It was a custody dispute. And so I think for me, I just early on decided that it was something that was something that I wanted to do. I mean, part of it, I think, was that I felt it was an ethical obligation, but part of it, it was just, I enjoyed it and I got meaning out of it. And so I think for me, it wasn't, I mean, I hear some stories for people that they knew from the beginning that they wanted to go into this. And for me, it was something that I came upon. And I would say as I started doing pro bono work as a lawyer, I became more and more familiar with all of the needs out there in the community and how a lot of people really did not have an ability to access the justice system. And so through my work as a pro bono volunteer attorney, I became really committed to access to justice issues. And of course, more so over the years as I've turned my career into this. Well, thank you for sharing. I think that's a really relatable experience where um, I think a lot of people's passions often get turned on by their experiences. It's not necessarily the idea or uh, an image <laughs> or something very abstract that got them. It's, as you say, concrete meaning and being helpful. And the more they dive in, the more they realize it suits them. And um, so I, I think that's an interesting pathway and um, 
Thank you for sharing. Before sure. we dive in more to your role and the firm, let's talk a little bit about Seattle. What's the pro bono and access to justice culture like in Seattle? Seattle is actually really great in this regard. We have a really great culture here in Seattle. It's, it's somewhat small, and it's an incredibly collaborative community. And I actually just spent the weekend in Yakima, Washington, sort of in the middle of the state at the Washington Access to Justice Conference. And so I have that experience very fresh in my mind. And I really came away from that just feeling incredibly proud of our state and our community. So it's not just Seattle, but Washington in general. Um, I, I think there's a real commitment to providing civil aid and to justice. And the Access to Justice Board just unveiled a new state plan for the coordinated delivery of civil legal aid to low-income people. Um, and, and really, statewide, they're, they're looking hard at ways to expand access to our civil justice system and how to identify and eliminate barriers that perpetuate poverty and deny justice to people. So I think, for me, I just I feel really proud of the community here and all the things that they've done. And um, there's not a lot of us here doing this work full time, at least from the law firm side, but we are, but we are very close. Are there particular areas of poverty law or pressing legal need that stand out or is it everything all the time? <laughs> are there <laughs> things that you think in the communities there that have sort of percolated to the top? Yeah, well, I think in some ways we are similar to the rest of the country in that at least in the past several months, immigration needs have really percolated to the top. And so there is a real focus on helping the immigrant community. We have a really large community here. And um, so I would say that has been an area of focus I've seen. Um, but even before that, a couple of years ago, they did a civil legal needs study here in Washington. And um, they really found that just civil legal aid is under attack, and, and you know, the, they came out with some interesting statistics there. And one of the things that they saw was that while low-income people in general have a large number of civil legal needs, one population in particular that really had a lot of need was in the domestic violence area, and that um, survivors of domestic violence were experiencing considerably more legal needs, even if it's not DV-related, just they had more needs than other people. So I'd say that's another area that I've seen here. And it's wonderful. We talked a little bit about this with Julie Orr, but in response to identifying a need, then the community has gotten together, rallied, and built programs to address them. So that, I think, is another testament to how amazing the community is there, that you're able to um, do the investigation and identify critical legal needs and then address them. So it's, it's a, an amazing model. Yeah, and I'm seeing that not just in domestic violence, but in other areas, and really just having come from the Access to Justice Conference, there's a lot of that. It's just really looking out there and seeing what the needs are. And the way, you know, normally, for example, this conference focuses on civil legal aid, but this time there were a number of people on the criminal defense side that came in because they're really seeing people that they're in the criminal justice system, but a lot of times it's because of these other civil legal issues that they have that bring them into the criminal justice system. And so there's really a, an incredible collaboration between the civil and the criminal side of things. And so that's been really impressive and inspiring to me to see the way that all of these different communities are really coming together to tackle problems. Yeah, that's cool. I think that there's definitely an emerging sort of consciousness and consciousness raising that the civil criminal divide 
is super artificial. <laughs> that people are people and that our needs are have tentacles in a lot of different areas and that if we're going to successfully attack them, we can't be so siloed. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's a great concept that's holding for. So let's talk more about you. Um, tell us a little bit about your role as pro bono counsel at the firm and how you spend your time. Sure. Well, this question reminds me of a, this great diagram I saw recently, and I hope I can explain it properly without a visual. But there's these sort of three large circles with a very small intersection in the middle. And one said something like, what I want to do today. And another said something like, what other people want me to do today. And another was you know, something about what really had to get done. And in the center was this tiny amount about what I actually did today. Um, and I, I love that diagram because that's how I feel, you know, I come in every day with a very long list and um, I'm working hard all day, but not necessarily getting everything, everything, you know, that I had intended to do um, done. And I don't know if that fully answers the question, but as far as how I spend my time and what I do, there's no two days that are the same. Lately, I've been spending a good part of my day, I'd say recruiting attorneys, just we have, there's just so many needs and we've had a lot of new programs and in the city. And so just trying to get people to training sessions coming up with new projects, and also a lot lately working with our corporate clients to help them. We've, there's a lot of big corporations here, and the legal departments are really wanting to get more involved, and so I've been working on partnerships and trying to help them as well as our own attorneys. So those are probably just some of the things I've been doing recently. If you asked me this question a few months back, I would probably say surveys, um, statistics, and my annual report. Yep. So it's Everything's seasonal and things percolate to the top of the to-do list at different times of the year. If you, if our bubble diagrams were a little different and <laughs> there was one bucket for, oh, you have more time suddenly and you could spend more time doing something, what would that be? How would you spend extra time if you had it? If I had more time, I would probably do more legal work directly. It is a part of what I do, mostly in a supervisory capacity, but I would love to dive deeper into personal representation. I think that's something that I would like to do. Another thing is, you know, I'm flying in so many different directions, and we have a large firm. We have about 1,000 attorneys, and so while I really want to have a handle on what is happening in all of our pro bono matters across the firm, it's just not possible with the amount of time. And so I think if I had more time, I would really want to talk to people about, you know, what they're doing and make sure that I'm more current so I could help them manage the pro bono matters and, you know, manage the program a little bit more directly in that way. I love it when teams call me and they send me documents and I can read them and I can really be part of what they're doing. And it's just not possible to do that all the time. I think that that's such an amazing observation and such a great answer. And I think it's something that a lot of people in these roles struggle with, which is sort of their own pro bono docket or <laughs> some sort of practice that they're doing and management and administration. And they're both full-time jobs. So, you know, where in the pendulum uh, does the balance lay? And it's different for different people with different priorities and different situations. But that's a really interesting um, um, way to spend more time. You know, I think that highlights yeah. a really common bal balance and struggle that people have. I, I do think it is a common struggle just from talking to my colleagues. 
Some firms have a number of people running the pro bono department, so they might have a pro bono counsel, pro bono partner who's doing more legal work and somebody else who's more on the administrative side. I think that's nice when you can divide the duties a little bit. Um, although we have a very large firm, it's really just me that's running everything. Um, and so I do feel that I'm, I'm sort of doing everything from top to bottom. And so it, it is a constant balancing act. So that's a good segue in some magical universe where you had <laughs> unlimited time um, and maybe more help. What would you personally wish you could be doing less of? Surveys. Surveys, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there are so many different surveys and they all ask things in different ways. And, you know, I, I know it's important. It's important to know what people are doing and how much legal work they're providing and in what areas. So um, I don't have a problem with the concept of them. It's just, uh, that's probably something I would want to spend a little less time with. And also statistics. Yeah. You know, I spend a lot of time working with finance and what are our numbers and how are we doing? And, and um, again, it's something that's important, but I just like diving deep into the substance. And so I, if I could spend a little less time doing those things, I would. What do you enjoy most about your work? Well, I enjoy a lot of things. I guess what I would say is that I really get my energy from other people and from feeling like I'm part of something. I've just always been this way. And so when I'm really able to connect with different people and, and, and the thing that I love about this job is I am always out there, whether I'm talking to our attorneys or staff or people in the pro bono community or my colleagues at other firms, just the collaboration and being out there working with other people and feeling like this isn't just a job, like we're really all in this together. And I, I feel like I have a responsibility to get our attorneys great opportunities and make them better lawyers and have them feel that, you know, they want to be more engaged in helping others. And so I just really enjoy sort of being out there working with people, getting them committed. And I especially enjoy when I, I see the fruits of our labor. Um, you know, when we have a project that's successful or um, we hear from a client just how much we help them, then that, that really makes me feel like even with all the administrative stuff that we do, that it's worthwhile. Well, I think that's a really energizing answer. Um, and it's a nice segue into what I wanted to ask you next, which since you talked about connections and earlier you talked about spending time introducing your, um, your lawyers and other professionals to new projects and getting training and new matters. But what do you think works best at the firm to incentivize and encourage your people to do pro bono work? That's a great question. Um, and, and that's actually something that I spend quite a bit of time thinking about. And I actually remember there was a great session at one of the PBI annual seminars. And, and I can't remember the name, but it was a guy talking about the lawyer brain and helping us understand sort of lawyers and how, you know, how they operate and what really motivates people to do them. Do you remember which I'm talking about? Yes. His name is Dr. Larry Richard. He's amazing. And his consulting company is called Lawyer Brain. And we'll push out some links and tweets and other ways to find him for more information when, when we air this episode. But yeah, he, he's an amazing, yeah. amazing resource. He's a lawyer and a PhD in psychology. And he just spends time studying the lawyer personality. And he gave us a lot oh. of insights and nuggets. Yeah. He did, and that, that's something that really stuck with me. I just I found it so fascinating. And I've tried, you know, I've tried to incorporate some of what he said and, and to toy with different tact tactics because the thing I found is, right, it's not the same thing that works for everyone. There's not, like, one way that I could say this is the best way to incentivize lawyers because, you know, they're motivated in different ways. I mean, recently with the election, I, I had people coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, I, I want to do something – 
how can I get involved? And so, you know, clearly just what was happening in the country was motivating to them. And there's nothing I did personally. It was just sort of seeing what was happening in the world. Um, I think so I think sometimes just seeing what's happening in the world and letting people know that there is a concrete way that you can help through pro bono legal service. That's a way to motivate people. Um, you know, sometimes I mentioned before working with corporate clients, and I think sometimes the ability to bond more with those clients is motivating. But but I think that's probably a smaller percentage. Most of the time, I think the best way to incentivize people, I find, is to make a personal connection and to figure out what does that person want to do. You know, what motivates what motivates that specific person in terms of what kind of work they want to do, how much time they have. And so when I actually have the time to really get to know people and to think, you know, just this very personal matchmaking, that's the best way that I can get people to do stuff. Because I'll say, you know, I was thinking about you and this project, I think this would be perfect for you and here's why. I think it's a lot harder for people to say no to that. Um, unfortunately, with a thousand lawyers, right. you know, I can't always do that level of, of matchmaking and, and um, you know, personal connections. But, but I do feel that when I can do that, that's the best way that I can motivate people to get involved. Yeah, the most effective, but the most time consuming. Have you, I'm just curious about this, have you noticed any differences in sort of what's effective, or maybe it, it's effective because it's what that cohort of lawyers are looking for? Have you noticed any difference based on sort of age? you know, what kind of first and second year associates are looking for now? And is that different than what younger associates were looking for, you know, five years ago? Like, have you seen any differences over time or is it reasonably steady? And sometimes it's outside influences. Like you mentioned, the election happens and then your job is to channel this motivation into good projects and good outcomes. Have you seen any evolution there? That's another really good question, and I have. My, my answer is I definitely have noticed a difference over the years. There has been, from what I can tell, there's been an increasing focus in law schools on social justice and on you know pro bono and access to justice issues. And so what I see is when the summer associates are coming to us, you know, they they more often than not are involved with things in their law school. And I don't remember... When I went to well, I do remember when I went to law school, but it was a very long time ago. Um, but I don't remember at that time ever feeling like it was out there and it was around and it was easy to get involved. And so, you know, I could just focus on my classes. And I'm sure there were some people doing it, but I don't think there was the focus that there is today. So right now, you know, for example, last week and this week, I'm giving presentations to our summer associates, and I always start off by saying, you know, tell me what you're doing because I want to know where they're coming from. And usually three quarters of the room are involved in something in their law school, at least. And so that's a big difference. And so I, I feel like it's easier to capture people when they're, when they're summers and when they're coming in as first years. And like I said before, that's what happened to me. I mean, I was a first year and somebody said, hey, will you come do this? And I think when you're a new lawyer, part of it is this increasing focus now on just getting involved. And so I think it's something that they expect. But part of it is when you're a new lawyer, you're just you're not afraid. You don't know anything. So whether you're doing pro bono or you're doing something in your practice area, you know, it almost doesn't matter. I, I think it gets more and more challenging as lawyers get more set in their in their practice area and in what they're doing. They're more scared to get out of what they're doing. And so um, I think for a variety of reasons, you know, getting people at the beginning is important. But definitely I've noticed that that's something that seems to be more important with every passing year. 
Oh, thank you. Those are great observations. Just quick tangent while we're talking about summer associates and it's summer associate season. What advice do you generally have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? Well, I do have advice that I that I've been giving in these presentations right now, and this is advice that I typically do give to new lawyers, both summers and incoming. And that advice is to be proactive about your career. I think that this is one of the most important things that a young lawyer can do. And, and what I tell them is, you know, whether it's pro bono or whether it's something else, don't sit in your office and wait for someone to come knock on the door and ask you to help on a project. Really think about what kind of lawyer you want to be and what kind of work you want to do and what do you want to be known for um, and, you know, who do you want to work with? And so I, I try to give them examples. You know, are there particular lawyers in this firm that you really want to work with that maybe you're not going to get an opportunity? Or, you know, is there something that you maybe want to get known for? I mean, I, I've seen first-year lawyers be the go-to people for subject areas in the firm because they develop expertise through pro bono. So I, that's my biggest piece of advice is to just to be proactive in your regular work and in your pro bono work. And I, I think that when you do that, your career is so much more satisfying because you don't feel that it's happening to you. You're in control of it, and that makes you so much more motivated to do the work that you're doing, whether it's putting in extra hours or what have you. I confess, I share very similar points with people, and I call it the, there's no prince or princess charming, like coming to save you. <laughs> you know, like you, <laughs> you, you got to own this. It's your life. It's your career. And I think particularly compared to, you know, bleep years ago when I was coming up, it's just really different. And you can't be a passive vessel, and you wouldn't be happy if you were uh in any event. So thank you. I feel like we're very in sync. So that those are great advice. It's actually great advice for young lawyers. And it's also great advice just for anybody <laughs> at any time in their careers, in any setting. So it's incredibly transferable. I want yeah, to Yeah, well actually yeah. that's that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> maybe you're not a young lawyer, maybe but maybe you're feeling like you want to change or you know that you're sort of not in control of your career and where it's going and to take a step back and to think about that. That's actually that's good. I maybe I'll have to use that when I'm trying to motivate some of our our partners and more senior lawyers, you know, like to to maybe I'll have to give them some of the same advice I give to the younger lawyers. I think it's true because I think people uh at a certain stage feel stuck in a different way. It it it's all the same and slightly different. So I think it's good advice for whatever setting we're finding ourselves. So yeah, that's I'll, I'll that's have to great. make a note of that. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. You have published an amazing pro bono annual report for last year, oh, thank you. 2016. It's fantastic. There's a wonderful message from the firm-wide managing partner and also a message from you. Um, you wrote in part that if you believe that home is where the heart is, then our 2016 annual pro bono annual report leads with its heart. When looking at our work in the past year, we were struck by a common pursuit among nearly all of our pro bono clients, the search for home in all of its physical and emotional meanings. So I, I wanted to talk to you about this theme, the search for a home, how you came up with it and, and what it means to, to as you were writing it and developing this, because I think it's incredibly powerful. 
Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm very proud of this report. And I mean, of course, it's a collaborative effort. I mean, I, I love just the way it looks. And that's all, you know, our design people and, and not me. And, you know, we, we had some great people in the marketing department that really helped us. So I, I do want to give them, you know, credit. But um, what I would say is, you know, every year, um, I sit down and start to think about what did we do over the year? And are there some common themes that we can pull out? And when this theme first emerged, uh, the theme about home, it was actually because I was looking and found that we had a lot of matters that were relating to housing. And, um, you know, I, I was, we, we were doing work to help low-income tenants living in uninhabitable conditions or facing eviction, working with nonprofits to build more low-income housing, some, you know, systemic work to combat homelessness and the criminalization of homelessness. And so this theme of home initially came about because I was just seeing so much work we were doing specifically about homes and housing. And then in January, the president issued his executive orders and the, the travel ban, you know, including the Muslim travel ban. And suddenly everything was about immigration. And we did a lot of immigration work last year, so I easily could have picked that as a theme. But, um, you know, suddenly we were doing all this work about immigration. And so the, while the focus was, you know, not new, um, we, I, we started thinking about home in a different way. And, you know, what really does home mean? And for immigrants, home is, it's about a country, right? It's, you know, they, maybe they're leaving their home country and they're trying to stay here because this is their new home. Um, and so whether home is actually a, a new safe housing environment or being safe in your environment, free from domestic violence, um, you know, or being in a home country, like it all kind of fit together. And so I think it was a combination. It, it sort of evolved, even though it was a, the same theme, it kind of evolved in terms of how, you know, how we were looking at it. Yeah, I loved going from sort of the literal to a more figurative. And as you say, in all its physical and emotional meanings, because they say, you know, home is where they have to take you. Home is where your family is. Home is where you feel safe. So it's very like sort of shelter, security, and, and, and what all that means and how that lends itself to uh, pro bono service. It, it's just, it's, it's very poetic. I love bringing the poetry back to pro bono. So I, I, I love that idea. And a bit later, you used a quote from Elie Wiesel, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. And I feel like that really speaks to the moment. Tell us a little bit about how you chose that. Sure. Well, if you look at our pro bono annual reports over the years, I, I always put a quote at the beginning. I'm a quote collector. Yeah. Kind of my thing. So whenever yep. I hear or read, or, you know, some kind of moving or inspirational quote, I add it to my running list of quotes. And so um, I actually had had, um, you know, had had some quotes similar to this. And last year, Ellie Wiesel passed away. And I really spent some time thinking about him. I was I he was just such an influential and, you know, um, motivating person. He was a Holocaust survivor. He had devoted his life to fighting um, indifference and tolerance and justice, you know, all, all of these different things. And so I started collecting some quotes from him um, because just, you know, thinking about him a lot. And the, this concept here, you know, we can't always prevent bad things from happening. Uh, in fact, a lot of the times we can't prevent bad things from happening, but that doesn't mean that we can't try to prevent them from happening. And when they do happen, that we can't step in and say something and do something. And um, and so I just think there's a lot of different quotes you could find. I mean, like I said, Ellie Wiesel was particularly meaningful to me, but, but I just think this is an important idea is that 
we have to stand up for what we believe in and for our rights, and whether that's civil rights or, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's really important. And we've certainly seen a lot of protests in the past year. And so I think a lot of people really feel this, that, that it's important and it's a way to feel empowered by stepping up and talking about what you believe in and doing pro bono work to help. Yeah, it's a, it's a timeless message, but it also seems incredibly current at this moment. So it's a great selection for any number of reasons. While we're talking about quotes, I wanted to try and play a quick word association game. So, for example, if someone asked me what pops into my head when you would say Perkins Coie, I'd probably say Leah Medway, since that's who I know who works there. Oh, okay. Or maybe that I would works. maybe I would say counsel to great companies, because that's the tagline, and I've been reading it a lot as I've been getting ready to uh, talk to you. So another shout out to your marketing department in addition to the annual report. But let's see what you would say. What comes to immediately to your mind when I say Perkins Coie? Culture. Th- that's a big thing at Perkins Coie. We we recently celebrated our 100th anniversary. You know, the firm's been around a long time. And, and, and another tagline, which, you know, you don't see as much in the, in the website is, you know, kind of the firm's the thing. And, you know, really, there is a, even though we've become this large national law firm, um, we've grown quite a bit over the eight years that I've been at the firm. And the firm is focused on excellent legal service and innovation and, you know, just striving to be the best. But, at the same time, they really care about maintaining our culture and what it means to be here. And I know the firm is incredibly proud um, of, you know, regularly being on the best places to work list and, um, you know, just making sure that people are happy here and that they feel invested in the firm. And so um, I, I will say that I have worked at quite a few law firms over the years. Um, I was as a paralegal, as a corporate attorney at a couple of law firms in the pro bono sphere. And, you know, of all the places that I've worked, Perkins is without a doubt the best environment, you know, in that sense that I've experienced. Great. Well, thank you for sharing. So I would like, this is sort of a two-part question I'd like to talk about next. So it's it's a lot of table setting. Um, okay. But I wanted you to tell us about Sarah Cruzian. And the reason that I'm interested in her is that I am a big fan of a short film that the firm produced. It's it's sort of a 10, 11 minute documentary short called The Chance for a New Life, the Sarah Cruzan story. And we'll tweet it out and provide links, but it's very easy to find. And I am such a fan of this piece. I have it bookmarked and I watch oh, it <laughs> when I need some inspiration. <laughs> I mean, it's tough stuff. Usually I watch it with some Kleenex, but it's so inspiring. I feel like fired up and ready to go, you know, when you need a little like kick in the, in the gut to kind of feel alive and motivated. This is one in my toolbox, you know, of kind of go-to oh, pieces. So I love that. I, I will definitely tell the guy, the guy that did it. Um, yeah, Mateo, that he did a great job. Oh, so, it's amazing. You. So my, my question sort of the, and now the floor will be to you to, to tell us about her and the firm's involvement. And part two is, how did how do you make a movie about it? You know, kind of we we do a lot of amazing work. We have firms have amazing, inspiring stories, but they don't all see the light of day into video. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, not only about the meat of the matter and the the heart of the representation and the, the substance of it, but I'm really curious how this video got made. I would be happy to talk about both of those things. Um, my my reaction 
to Sarah is honestly pretty similar to yours. I, I think she's an amazing woman, and she is really inspirational to me. Um, and really one of the most powerful cases that I can think of that we've handled at my time at the firm. Uh, Sarah is a woman that had a tough upbringing. I mean, she really, she was really not in a good situation when she was younger. Um, she found herself involved with a older man who ended up um, trafficking her as a prostitute, you know, and um, she was, when she was 13, I mean, you know, it was, she really had a very tragic upbringing. And ultimately, she ended up killing him, her pimp. And um, she, this is, you know, she was about 16, I think, when that happened. And she ended up being sentenced to life without pro the possibility of parole. And of course, there's been a lot over the years. I mean, there's been a lot, you know, of litigation and emphasis on juveniles and how their brains work and how it's really inhumane to sentence them to life without possibility of parole. Um, but, you know, at the time, this is what happened. This was in California. And our firm got involved because um, it was quite a long time ago. I mean, we, we started this when I came to the firm back in um, 2009. So it was probably a little bit before that. And um, the case was brought to us, and it was a partnership that we worked with a couple of different people. And um, you know, our goal, Sarah, at that time had spent, you know, more than half her life in prison, and she was a model prisoner. You know, she got her degree. She won awards. I mean, she was truly inspirational in prison, and she she accepted what she did, and she accepted responsibility, and, and you know, that, that that was wrong. But what was really sad was that, um, you know, they didn't allow any mitigating evidence, um, you know, the idea that um, when you're in an abusive situation and, you know, that may lead you to commit a crime. Um, you know, that that whole concept wasn't introduced at trial, and she really didn't get a fair shake. And so we had a team, a cross-office team out of our Los Angeles and Seattle offices that worked for years on, on Sarah's behalf. And ultimately, uh, they were able to get her sentence commuted um, to get rid of the without possibility of parole. And so her sentence was commuted by Governor Schwarzenegger right towards the end of his term. And then, you know, but we, but we kept with it. We kept on going. Um, we, our, t our team worked incredibly hard and ultimately they were able to get her out of prison on parole. And, and it's actually timely that you asked this question because I just learned that, you know, she's now been met all of her provisions for parole to be over. I mean, she, so she, you know, this is somebody that we were working with for such a long time and, um, She's just really become inspirational. And since getting out of prison, I mean, she's become a public speaker. We flew her up here to speak with all of our attorneys and not just our attorneys, but her story has really spoken to the staff mm -hmm. at our firm. And, and for years, you know, even though we were doing tons of other cases, everybody wanted to know how Sarah, what's going on with Sarah? You know, when are we getting Sarah out of prison? And then, so it was just, it was amazing. And, you know, we had, she came up here and spoke and I mean, we had, you know, standing room only and our staff were hugging her and people were crying. I mean, it was just, it's really been this incredible journey, I think, for, for our entire firm along with Sarah. And as far as the video um, was concerned that you mentioned, um, we generally every year we have a partner planning conference. All of our partners from across the country get together. And I started working with our marketing department because I wanted to have some, um, you know, either, either live speaking or video presentations. And really, you know, we decided that what would be more powerful than a bunch of lawyers talking about, you know, I did this on my case, you know, I 
this is you know what it meant to me that we really wanted to tell a specific story to show the real impact of pro bono work and how it can literally help change somebody's life and not just somebody's life. I mean, our work for Sarah really helped led to some systemic change, you know, in California. It didn't just help Sarah, but but it helped lead to changes in how juveniles, you know, were sentenced. And so um, we decided to do a video focused on her and her story. And I mean, you know, that's how it came about. It wasn't meant to be, it was really focused on just internally, but it, it came out so well. I mean, it was such an amazing video that we, we wanted to share it with the world, really. Um, and I remember sitting at that pro bono, the partner planning conference when they showed the video. And, you know, the, you talked about the Kleenex, you know, the tears were flowing all around me. And, um, you know, it was, everybody said, you know, you're trying to make me feel, you know, guilty. That I'm going to do pro bono. But but really, it was just I think it's just such an inspiring story um, to everybody. Yeah, I mean, it is goosebump stuff. So I think uh, it's just amazing. The firm's work was amazing and sh she's amazing. And so sharing the story together, I think, is just, it's just dynamite stuff. So thank you for telling us about it a little behind the scenes. And uh, it's, it's totally worth 11 minutes of people's time. I, I think they'll never forget it. Yeah, Amazing. well, thank you. I, I would encourage anybody to look at it. I think, I mean, you know, not not every pro bono case is that way. I mean, I wish we had, well, I don't wish there were more Sarah Cruzans in terms of what happened to her and the experience she had, but I wish, you know, that every case was like that just in terms of having a client that's so grateful and so sympathetic and, you know, you just, they, they just have been so wronged by the justice system and, and the, you know, the ability to come in and do that and change. And so um, it's just, it's a great example of when everything goes right, the power of pro bono. In addition to Sarah, could you share another example of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you for, for whatever reason? Yeah, I think obviously Sarah's case was meaningful, but there's so many different things that we've done. Um, you know, when you work personally on a case, you, you get to know that client and you become invested in a different sort of way. And so I think it's hard not to bring a certain kind of meeting um, from work that you've done. And one client that really sticks with me is actually one of the first clients I worked with when I came here to the firm. And um, the case was referred by Kids in Need of Defense or KIND. And we actually house KIND in our office here in Seattle. So we have a really close relationship and we've done a lot of work with them over the years. And this was a young girl um, from Mexico who was seeking a U visa, which is a uh, you know, visa for victims of crime. And she'd been brought to the U.S. at a young age by her mom, who then took up with a pretty bad guy and she was living with him. And, you know, he was essentially her stepfather. Um, and he abused her for years. And, um, you know, probably when she was about 13 and, you know, ultimately she got pregnant. And it was just a, you know, it was just a horrible situation that she was in. And, but she was so sweet and she was so kind and she was such a great mom. And she, you know, she was just like, um, really just coming from a bad situation and turning it around, I guess a bit like Sarah, but, you know, different, different situation, of course. And, um, and so, you know, I worked for her and was able to get her, her U visa. Um, and that, you know, allowed her to stay here and not worry about being deported because one of the things, of course, when she was being abused was, you know, if you tell anybody, we're going to deport you back to Mexico, right. Where she has no family and no friends and, you know, she didn't know anybody. And, um, and so, you know, we were able to get her, her status and she could get a job and really support her daughter and just get out of that situation. And, um, you know, I've, over the years I've, I've seen her and she's, um, really just doing amazing. And so 
that case had a lot of meaning for me, just being that even if it's a small case, um, you know, even if it's just a small individual case for somebody, how um, that can really change them and the trajectory of their life. So that was pretty meaningful for me personally. It's also amazing how resilient people are, right? That just the perspective that it gives us in terms of the crazy things that people go through in their lives, crazy, awful, and the sort of ability to overcome, even with some help, but still, it's it's inspiring, I think. It, it's really amazing. I mean, actually, that's something I've seen time and again. We've also done a lot of work for Holocaust survivors, and I'm amazed at some of my survivor clients because I've done a lot of that work directly as well. And I'm like, you just grew up in the worst possible situation. I mean, you know, you and your your family was killed and you were forced into ghettos and sometimes concentration camps and, you know, fleeing with absolutely nothing. And you're this sort of happy, positive person. And how do you come from such a terrible situation and, uh, you know, come out of that, you know, sort of, I mean, obviously scarred to some degree, but so positive. And I think it's a lesson for all of us. And um, I think that's why a lot of people do pro bono. They just, they learn a lot from their clients too, you know, Um, and and that can make you feel really inspired. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful point. Before we move on, did you have anything else to add about sort of meaningful experiences? I know it's like picking which child you like the most. (laughs) You know, it's like you could just. I love them both. Yeah. Hours (laughs) and hours and hours. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, another case that I guess I would mention that sort of struck me, but for a very different reason is, um, you know, sort of more on the more systemic side. It was a case that we did here in Washington. Um, it was it was the Wilbur case, and it was against two cities here in Washington. And the case was about public defense. And um, it was really pretty incredible what was happening. There was, you know, there was a city in, in Washington where there were I think two halftime public defenders who had a caseload of like a thousand people. And so obviously they were not able to, to really do what they needed to do for those people. And it became evident that, um, you know, this was a, a, not, not just a problem in these cities and not just a problem in Washington, but really across the country. And um, that case was, was pretty incredible because um, through that case, we were able to make change to how the public defense system worked in Washington, but it also had a national impact, and it's been cited as being influential in a number of other cases across the country. And so, um, you know, we talked a bit at the beginning about just the intersection with criminal and civil, and and so this case, you know, it, it wasn't just about one person in the way, you know, that Sarah or this other case I talked about, but it's really showing that you can have real systemic change, you know, just through one piece of impact litigation. And our attorneys did a great job. And I think it was really groundbreaking in terms of how public defense is looked at and how it's changed here and how it is changing across the country. And obviously, there's a long way to go. Um, You know, you don't just have one case and everything changes. But um, that's a case I think about a lot, just in terms of the systemic role, you know, what we can really do to make change at that level. Those are such complimentary answers, and I think they demonstrate the depth and breadth of law firm pro bono, right? The, the power to change a life and the power to change the system, and that they, they are both valuable and both needed, and those are really helpful to painting a very complete and full picture. So fantastic examples. Thank you so much. So a little outside the box here, Leah, but if you had a magic wand, what would you change about pro bono or access to justice? Oh, 
Well, I would love to have a magic wand. Do you have one? <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it in um, the mail. No, we don't. But <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's a good question uh, because I, there are quite a few things that I would probably want to change. But top of mind, I would say is that I would love to see a right to counsel um, across the country for uh, for children and for immigrants and survivors of domestic violence. Um, you know, I mean, really everybody, I suppose, if the wand is magic, but, but you know, a lot of the things that we've talked about here um, and a lot of the problems in terms of access to justice are there is not a right to counsel. Um, you know, there is in criminal, but, but not necessarily in civil cases. And, you know, for example, in, in the immigration context, you know, there is not a right to counsel. And so you've got immigrants that are facing deportation, uh, you know, to countries where, you know, they might be facing serious persecution or death. And they can't even, you know, they don't necessarily have a lawyer. Um, you know, it's scary for lawyers for us lawyers to go into court. I just can't only imagine how scary it's for somebody who's a child, um, you know, or somebody that's been abused and has to stand there in court with their, uh, with their abuser, who's usually lawyered up and, you know, they aren't, um, or somebody who's not familiar with the language. And so um, I suppose if I had this magic wand and I did create this right to counsel, I would um, simultaneously need to create more pro bono lawyers <laughs> to fill that need. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but that's what I, I think I would say top of mind. Oh, I think those are great. And also a great education piece because, you know, due to our civic education or lack thereof, plus people doing nothing but watching Law and & Order and you know, getting their education from crime shows, people don't understand this. They, they do not know <laughs> that, 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 that really, really significant things can happen to you. Uh, and you have no right to a lawyer, and our whole system is so hard and complicated that it's it's premised on people having lawyers, not individuals being able to figure it out and help themselves. So, um, yeah, those are and the, and the yeah. statistics bear it out. I mean, I think um, I think in you know in the immigration context, the, the, at least some of the numbers I've heard are that you know that you're four times more likely to be successful if you have a lawyer. And you know, I, I this is something I say to lawyers a lot when they say, well, but you know, I I don't have expertise in this, and I'm. I tell them, well, look, first of all, we're not going to put you in a situation where you don't have some guidance. So, you know, if you don't have the expertise, obviously we're going to be partnering with people who are going to give you that mentorship. But just having a lawyer next to you who can present your case. I mean, if you don't have a winning case, you don't have a winning case. But how are you supposed to even get to that point of seeing that if you don't have somebody to present it for you when you can't present it for yourself? And so I do, I do think that's a really central thing that would be great to see more people have. Great point. So, Leah, let's end with this. Who are your pro bono role models and why? You know, so many of my counterparts are truly inspirational to me. So, um, and I take different things away from different people. So, there's there are probably a lot of people I could talk about, but I will say that um, my biggest role model, and, and it's an easy one, is Lisa Dewey at DLA Piper. Um, when I started my pro bono career, uh, you know, I had been I had been a corporate lawyer at a couple of different firms, and, and I ended up making a real career shift, and I was the number two person. I was the pro bono manager working with Lisa, and, um, you know, now there's sort of a, she's got an empire, you know, people at <laughs> yeah. that firm. I mean, they really are, you know, the gold standard for pro bono, and, um, and you know, people are sometimes very surprised to hear that, you know, because they think of DLA Piper and, and, you know, how many people they have in the pro bono department, but at the time, it was just me and Lisa, and um, she is really the person, you know, she was my mentor in this profession. And I just learned so much working from her. And um, I mean, she just has this amazing ability to be at the same time, this incredibly friendly and kind person who you just like and you want to talk to. And um, but at the same time, just really tough and 
good at fighting for what she believes in. And when you look at the program that she's created at that firm and the impact that it's had literally across the world, um, you know, it's really inspiring. And at the same time, like when you meet her, if you did, if you didn't know her, you would probably envision her being somebody different. And then you meet her and she's just so amazing and friendly. And, um, and I just really learned so much working from her and, um, and so she, she, she has been from the beginning and continues to be a role model for me. Oh, thank you for sharing. We are also big fans of Lisa's. So it's a delight to talk to her. And Leah, it is a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure and very inspiring. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Leah for making the time to be with us. Our special thanks and best wishes this week go out to David Lipscomb. You may know him as Producer Dave. After many years at PBI, Dave has moved on to pursue his passion for urban planning. Dave was a founder of the pod, and it's no overstatement to say that we couldn't have created the Pro Bono Happy Hour without him. His talents and expertise with audio and recording were one of the reasons we dreamt up having a podcast in the first place. If you go back to some of our very first episodes, you'll hear him taking his turn at the mic and hosting. He did it all for us, and we are so grateful. Good luck, Dave. Your legacy will live on iTunes for a long, long time. And an enthusiastic welcome to producer Misha, who is now steering the ship with her grace and good cheer. We're excited to embark on this new adventure together. Hey, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions, and best wishes to Dave, we'll be sure to pass them along for you, to probono at probonoinsd.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand our conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.